Chapter Twenty Three of War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. War by Pierre Lotti. Translated by Marjorie Laurie. Chapter Twenty Three, The First Sunshine of March. March tenth, nineteen sixteen. It is just here, I believe, that that zone, some fifteen to twenty miles in breadth, so terribly torn and rent, which stretches through our land of France from the North Sea to Alsace, following the line of those trenches where the barbarians have dug themselves in, it is just here, I believe, that that zone, where suffering and glory reign supreme, attains the climax of its nightmare-like elusiveness, the climax of its horror. I say, just here, because I am not allowed to be more definite. Just here, however, in a certain province which had even before the war a depressing nickname, something like the desolate province, the mean province, or even, if you like, the lousy province. The reason was that even before it was laid waste, it was already very barren, almost without verdure. It had nothing to show except unfruitful valleys, some clumps of stunted pines, some poverty-stricken villages, which had not even the saving grace of antiquity, for century by century savages from Germany had come and disported themselves there, and when they went away everything had to be rebuilt. And now, since the great new onrush, which surpassed all abominations ever before experienced, how strange, fantastic almost, seems this region of woe, with its calcined ruins, its chalky soil dug over and again dug over down to its very depths, as if by myriads of burrowing animals. Once again I make my way today in my motor-car into the midst of it all, on some mission assigned to me, and I had never yet seen it in all the mire of the thaw, in which our poor little warriors in blue caps are so uncomfortably engulfed up to mid-leg. I feel my heart sinking more and more the farther I go along these broken-up roads, which are becoming still more crowded with our dear soldiers, all lamentably coated with greyish mud. The occasional villages on our road are more and more damaged by shells, and peasant women or children are no longer to be seen. There are no more civilians, nothing but blue helmets, but of these there are thousands. The rapid melting of the snow in such a sudden burst of sunshine marks the distant landscape with zebra-like stripes, white and earth-coloured and all the hills which we passed now seem to be inhabited by tribes of troglodytes, while every slope which faces us, who are coming in this direction, and which, owing to its position, has thus escaped the notice and the fire of the enemy, is riddled with mouths of caves, some ranged in rows, some built in stories one above the other, and from these peer out human heads in helmets, enjoying the sun, what can this country be? Is it prehistoric, or merely very remote? Surely no one would say that it was France, save for this bitter, icy wind, 
this country with its sky almost too blue to-day for a northern sky, might be taken for the banks of the upper Nile, the Libyan ridge where subterranean caverns gape. Again a semblance of a village appears, the last through which I shall pass, for those which are distant landmarks on the road that leads towards the barbarians are nothing more now than hapless heaps of stone resembling barrows. This village, too, be it understood, is three-quarters in ruins. There remain fragments of walls in grotesque shapes, letting in the daylight, and displaying a black marbling of soot where the chimneys used to be but many soldiers are gaily having their breakfast in the purely imaginary shelter afforded them by these remains of houses. There are pay-sergeants, even, who are seated unconcernedly at improvised tables, busy with their writing. Bang! A shell. It is a shell hurled blindly and from a great distance by the barbarians, without definite purpose, merely in the hope that it may succeed in hurting someone. It has fallen on the ruins of a roofless stable, where some poor horses are tethered, and here are two of them who have been struck down and are lying bellies upwards and kicking out, as they do when they are dying. They stain the snow, crimson with blood, spurting from their chests in jets, as if forced from a pump. The village soon disappears in the distance, and I enter this no-man's land, always rather a solemn region, which from end to end along the front indicates the immediate neighbourhood of the barbarians. The March sun, astonishingly strong, beats down upon this tragic desert where great sheets of white snow alternate with broad, mud-coloured surfaces. And now, whenever my car stops and pauses, for some reason or other, and the engine is silent, the noise of the cannon is heard more and more loudly. At last I reached the farthest point to which my car can convey me. If I took it on farther, it would be seen by the boches, and the shells that are roaming about here and there in the air would converge upon it. It must be safely bestowed, together with my chauffeurs, in a hollow of the undulating ground, while I continue my journey alone on foot. First of all I have to telephone to General Headquarters. The telephone office is that dark hole over there, hidden among scanty bushes. Climbing down a very narrow flight of steps, I penetrate seven or eight yards into the earth, and there I find four soldiers installed as telephone girls, illumined by tiny electric lamps that shine like glow-worms. These are territorials, about forty years of age, and the man who hands me the telephone apparatus wears a wedding ring. Doubtless he has a wife and children living somewhere yonder, out in the open air, where life is possible. Nevertheless, he tells me that he has been six months in this damp hole, beneath the surface of ground which is continually swept by shells, and he tells me this with cheerful resignation, as if the sacrifice were quite a natural thing. In the same spirit his companions speak of their white ant existence without a shade of complaint. And these too are worthy of admiration, all these patient heroes of the darkness, equally so, perhaps, with their comrades who fight in the open air in the light of day, with mutual encouragement. Emerging from the underground cave, where the noises are muffled, I hear very clearly the cannonade. My eyes are dazzled by the unwanted sunlight which illumines all those white stretches of snow. 
I have to journey about two miles through this strange desert to reach a paltry little clump of sorry-looking pines which I perceive over there on some rising ground. It is there that I have made an appointment to meet an officer of sappers, whom my business concerns, for the purpose of fulfilling my mission. A pretense of a desert, I ought rather to call it, for underground it is thickly populated by our soldiers, armed and alert. At the first signal of an attack they would rush out through a thousand apertures, but for the moment, throughout the whole extent of this tract, so sun-steeped and yet so cold, not more than one or two blue caps are visible, belonging to men who are stealing along from one shelter to another. And it is, moreover, a terribly noisy desert, for besides the continual detonation of artillery from varying ranges, there is a noise like huge kinds of beetles flying, which, as they pass, make almost the same buzzing sound as aeroplanes, but they all fly so fast as to be invisible. Their flight is haphazard, and when they strike their heads hard against the ground, pebbles, earth, scrap iron, spout up in jets, shaped like wheat sheaves. On the eastern horizon, silhouetted against the sky, stands one of those tumuli of ruins which now mark the place of former villages, and it is here especially that those huge beetles are bent on falling, raising each time clouds of plaster and dust. It is, to be sure, a useless and idle bombardment, for already all this has perished. Today especially, being a day of a great thaw, a distance of two miles here in this region where so many of our poor soldiers are doomed to exist is equal to a distance of at least ten miles elsewhere. It is such heavy going. You sink up to your ankles in mud, and you cannot draw your foot out, for the mud sticks tight like glue. The wind still remains cold and icy, but in the midst of a sky too deeply blue shines a sun, beating down upon my head, and under the steel helmet which grows heavier and heavier, beads of sweat stand upon my forehead. The snow has made up its mind to melt, and that suddenly. All the summits of those melancholy-looking hills, bared of their covering, resume again their brown colour, and resemble hindquarters of animals crouching on these plains which still remain white. This is the first time that I find myself absolutely, infinitely, alone in the midst of this scene of intense desolation, which, though to-day it happens to glitter with light, is none the less dismal. Until I reach the little wood whither I am bound on duty, there is nothing to think about, nothing with which I need concern myself. I need not trouble to get out of the way of shells, for they would not give me time, nor even to select places where to put my feet, since I sink in equally wherever I step. And so, gradually, I find myself relapsing into a state of mind characteristic of former days before the war, and I look at all these things to which I had grown accustomed, and view them impartially, as if they were new. Twenty short months ago, who would have imagined such scenes? For instance, these countless spoil-heaps, white in colour, because the soil of this province is white, spoil-heaps which are thrown up everywhere in long lines, tracing on the desert so many zebra-like stripes. Is it possible that these indicate the only tracks by which to-day our soldiers of France can move about with some measure of safety? They are little hollow tracks, some undulating, 
some straight, communication trenches which the French nickname intestines. These have been multiplied again and again, until the ground is furrowed with them unendingly. What prodigious work, moreover, they represent, these mole-like paths, spreading like a network over hundreds of leagues, if to their sum be added trenches, shelter-caves, and all those catacombs that penetrate right into the heart of the hills, the mind is amazed at excavations so extensive, which would seem the work of centuries. And these strange kinds of nets, stretched out in all directions, would any one, unless previously warned and accustomed to them, understand what they were? They look as if gigantic spiders had woven their webs around countless numbers of posts, which stretch out beyond range of sight, some in straight lines, some in circles or crescents, tracing on that wide tract of country designs in which there must surely be some cabalistic significance intended to envelop and entangle the barbarians more effectively. Since I last came this way, these obstructing nets must have been reinforced to a terrible extent, and their number has been multiplied by two, by ten, in order to achieve such inextricable confusion, our soldiers, those weavers of snares, must have made in them turnings and twists with their great bobbins of barbed wire carried under their arms. But here, at various points, are enclosures, whose purpose is obvious at a glance, and which add to the grisly horror of the whole scene. These fences of wood surround closely packed groups of humble little wooden crosses, made of two sticks. Alas, what they are is clear at first sight. Thus, then, they lie, within sound of the cannonade, as if the battle were not yet over for them, these dear comrades of ours who have vanished, heroes, humble yet sublime, inapproachable for the present, even for those who weep for them, inapproachable because death never ceases to fly through the air which stirs overhead, above their little silent gatherings. Ah, to complete the impression of unreality, a black bird appears of fabulous size, a monster of the apocalypse, flying with great clamour aloft in the air. He is moving in the direction of France, seeking, no doubt, some more sheltered region, where at last women and children are to be found, in the hope of destroying some of them. I keep on walking, if walking it can be called, this wearisome, pitiless repetition of plunges into snow and ice-cold mud. At last I reach the clump of trees where we have arranged to meet. I am thankful to have arrived there, for my helmet and cap were encumbrances under that unexpectedly hot sun. I am, however, before my time, the officer whom I invited to meet me here, in order to discuss questions concerning new works of defence, new networks of lines, new pits, that is he, no doubt, that blue silhouette coming this way across the snow-shrouded ground. But he is far away, and for a few more moments I can still indulge in the reverie with which I wiled away the journey, before the time comes when I must once more become precise and business-like. Evidently the place is not one of perfect peace, for it is clear that these melancholy boughs, half stripped of leaves already, have suffered from those great humming cockchafers that fly across from time to time, and have been shot through as if they were no stronger than sheets of paper. It is, to be sure, but a small wood, yet it keeps me company, wrapping me round with an illusion of safety. 
I am standing here on rising ground, where the wind blows more icily, and I command a view of the whole terrible landscape, a succession of monotonous hills, striped in zebra fashion with whitish trenches. Its few trees have been blasted by shrapnel. In the distance, that network of iron wire, stretching out in all directions, shines brightly in the sun, and is not unlike the gossamer which floats over the meadows in springtime. And on all sides the detonation of artillery continues with its customary clamour, unceasing here, day and night, like the sea beating against the cliffs. Ah, the big black bird has found someone to talk to in the air. I see it suddenly assailed by a quantity of those flakes of white cotton wool, bursts of shrapnel, in appearance so innocent, yet so dangerous to birds of his feather. So he hurriedly turns back, and his crimes are postponed to another day. From behind a neighbouring hill issues a squad of men in blue, who will reach me before the officer on the road yonder. It is one, just one, of a thousand of those little processions which, alas, may be met with every hour all along the front, forming, as it were, part of the scenery. In front march four soldiers carrying a stretcher, and others follow them to relieve them. They, too, are attracted by the delusive hope of protection afforded by the branches, and at the beginning of the wood they stop instinctively for a breathing space and to change shoulders. They have come from first-line trenches a mile or two away, and are carrying a seriously wounded man to a subterranean field hospital, not more than a quarter of an hour's walk away. They, likewise, had not anticipated the heat of that terrible March sun, which is beating down on their heads. They are wearing their helmets and winter caps, and these weigh upon them as heavily as the precious burden which they are so careful not to jolt. In addition to this, they drag along on each leg a thick crust of snow and sticky mud, which makes their feet as heavy as elephants' feet, and the sweat pours in great drops down their faces, cheerful in spite of fatigue. "'Where is your man wounded?' I ask, in a low voice. In a voice still lower comes the reply. His stomach is ripped open, and the major in the trench said that— They finish the sentence merely by shaking their heads, but I have understood. Besides, he has not stirred. His poor hand remains lying across his eyes and forehead, doubtless to protect them from the burning sun, and I ask them, "'Why have you not covered his face?' We put a handkerchief over it, sir, but he took it off. He said he preferred to remain like this, so that he could still look at things between his fingers. Ah, the last two men have blood as well as sweat pouring over their faces, and trickling in a little stream down their necks. It is nothing much, sir, they say. We got that as soon as we started. We began by carrying him along the communication trenches, but that jolted him too much. So then we walked along outside in the open. Poor fellows, admirable for their very carelessness. To save their wounded men from jolts, they risked their own lives. Two or three of these death-bringing cockchafers, which go humming along here at all hours, came down and were crushed to pieces on the stones close to them, and wounded them with their shattered fragments. The Germans disdained to fire at a single wayfarer like myself, but a group of men, and a stretcher in particular, they cannot resist. One of these men, both of whom are dripping with blood, has perhaps actually received only a scratch, but the other has lost an ear. Only a shred is left, hanging by a thread. 
"'You must go at once and have your wound dressed at the hospital, my friend,' I say to him. "'Yes, sir. And we are just on our way there, to the hospital. It is very lucky. This is the only idea of complaint that has entered his head. It is very lucky.' And he says this with such a quiet, pleasant smile, grateful to me for taking an interest in him. I hesitated before going to look more closely at their seriously wounded man, who never stirred, for I feared lest I should disturb his last dream. Nevertheless, I approach him very gently, because they are just going to carry him away. Alas! He is almost a child, a child from some village. So much is clear from his bronzed cheeks, which have scarcely yet begun to turn pale. The sun, even as he desired, shines full upon his comely face, the face of a boy of twenty, with a frank and energetic expression, and his hand still shades his eyes, which have a fixed look, and seem to have done with sight. Some morphia had to be given him, to spare him at least unnecessary suffering. Lowly child of our peasantry, little ephemeral being, of what is he dreaming, if indeed he still dreams? Perhaps of a white-capped mother, who wept tender tears whenever she recognized his childish writing on an envelope from the front. Or perhaps he is dreaming of a cottage garden, the delight of his earliest years, where, he reflects, this warm March sun will call to life new shoots all along some old wall. On his chest I see the handkerchief with which one of the men had attempted to cover his face. It is a fine handkerchief, embroidered with a marquis's coronet, the coronet of one of his stretcher-bearers. He has desired still to look at things, in his terror, doubtless, of the black night. But soon he will suddenly cease to be aware of this same sun, which now must dazzle him. First of all, he will enter the half-darkness of the field hospital, and immediately afterwards there will descend upon him that black, inexorable night in which no March sun will ever rise again. Go on at once, my friends, I say to them. The wind blows too cold here for people drenched with sweat like you. I watch them move away, their legs weighted with slabs of viscous mud. My admiration and my compassion go with them on their way through the snow, where they plod along so laboriously. These men, to be sure, still have some privileges, for they can at least help one another, and careful hands are waiting to dress their wounds in an underground refuge, which is almost safe. But close to this, at Verdun, there are thousands of others, who have fallen in confused heaps, smothering one another. Underneath corpses lie dying men, whom it is impossible to rescue from those vast charnel-houses. So long ago, and so scientifically prepared by the Kaiser, for the greater glory of that ferocious young nonentity whom he has for a son. End of chapter 23